This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday mornings at 11 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. People get the economics of a growing city and they want to invest here, but you need to get a certain return. And sometimes you do the math and you say, we're getting to a point where we can see new supply, but that gets blurred into... Well, there's not enough affordable housing being built. It has to be divided into two separate businesses. And it can be divided into two separate businesses in a couple ways, in my mind. Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss rent control. Then we're going to learn how to survive the holidays with systems and not discipline. Then, we'll learn about lifestyle tips for boosting moods. And lastly, we'll talk about the risks to eye health for those with diabetes. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. So today we're going to discuss a topic that we've touched upon sort of numerous times over the last couple of months, and that is rent control and you know what it's doing to the market in Ontario and specifically in Toronto. I'll give my perspective as a know-it-all, but you give your perspective as a true know-it-all as somebody in the industry who has to plan and make investments, okay? I think that makes sense. Good. All right. So let's start at the beginning. Without getting into too much detail, let's just sort of ground the discussion with what is rent control? So rent control, as you know, are price controls that control what landlords can charge tenants for apartments. And in a summary way, there's two main rent controls. Mm -hmm. One is the amount that you're allowed to increase rent year over year for an existing resident or tenant. Right. And uh, so that's if you're paying $1,000 a month and you're limited to a 1.8% increase, your rent can go up only $18 a year unless there are... Capital expenditures, right? Right, exactly. And there's a formula for amortizing capital expenditures or allowable capital expenditures that allow it. And the second piece of rent control talks about what can happen with rents when somebody vacates the apartment, the landlord has a vacant apartment and then puts it for rent again. And... In Ontario, we've gone back and forth with different types and levels of of rent controls over the years. And in an interesting way, you know, we've had some changes recently um, that people have reacted to. I think overreacted to in some ways. So let's explain what those recent changes are. In the 
anticipation of a provincial election, the, the uh, <laughs> provincial uh, liberals. Liberals uh, gave out some goodies. Right. Yeah. And they decided that, you know, since uh, 1991, there was legislation that post-1991 buildings were exempt from rent controls altogether. Right. That meant that even for existing tenants, year after year, the landlord had free control over what rents could be charged. So your rent could go up theoretically, but it could double if somebody wanted to do it. Right. But it was tethered to the market, right? I mean, Absolutely. So that throws around all kinds of things. First of all, there weren't that many apartment buildings built since 1991. Right. uh, Because at the time there were pretty strict rent controls and this was done to try to get people to build new buildings. But that happened at a time when there wasn't vacancy decontrol for most of the market. So the market was really tightly controlled. And when you were a standing tenant, your rents were set by a rent uh, registry. And when you left, that rent had bearing on the next tenant as well. Uh, And we know what happened during those times. You can look back. uh, That experiment in strict rent controls was a terrible thing for everybody. People couldn't make sense of investing in apartment buildings. So very few got built. And the existing apartment buildings really got run down because there was no money left for landlords or no incentive for landlords to reinvest in their buildings. So many landlords became low-cost operators, and they tried to operate on a shoestring budget, and buildings got tired, and people couldn't find good quality accommodation. And sometimes to get an apartment in a good location, you rented an apartment in poor shape, and you renovated it yourself because there was no other way to get there. And we forget that quickly, that it just didn't work. And the other thing that came out of that is there are a lot of people who would like to be responsible long-term investors in this space. Most of them exited. They didn't want to be seen as slumlords. Uh, They didn't want to be written up in the newspaper. If you're a pension fund or an insurance company or a public company in the real estate business, you want to get far away from a business where there is this sort of strict controversy between uh, tenants and landlords. And some people just said, you know what? I can invest in office buildings. I can invest in industrial properties. I can invest in shopping centers. Why do I go to this regulated business? doesn't make sense. And, And the end result was no new supply and a really for lack of a better word, crappy uh, inventory of existing products. Right. And, and you know, it became political fodder too, right? There's affordable housing and then there's housing and it all became blurred. There's a lot of people who choose to rent for a number of reasons, but they don't necessarily need affordable housing in the sense that it was traditionally meant. And that was affordable in the sense that everybody, whether whatever their profession or where they were in terms of their income, could live in the city. And then to my mind, what when you blur the issue between affordable housing and housing, and you start talking about the right to live or, or, the, or the right to have housing, basically the inevitability is the government has to take control of all rental housing because who the hell else is going to be in the market to put up with all the regulation that you've just outlined? I right? agree. And it's a really touchy subject to sort of try to delve into because it is so political in terms of you know, how do you differentiate what's affordable and what's not affordable? Right. Let's try to make it clear. Uh, there's a certain cost to building a building. And, right. and maintaining it. Correct. And providing the services that people need to live there. You need to staff it and you need to provide um, utilities. And, uh, and again, you need to maintain it. Right. And that comes with a cost. 
And if you can't get a reasonable return on your investment, people won't invest in that space. They'll move to another space. Right. And it's bad enough that you know this is an industry that's had a ping pong back and forth in terms of regulation and deregulation. So you know you've got to be a little crazy just to to be prepared to invest in the space to start off with. Right but, on the on the will come right. Like like why would you t- why would you assume that the next government is going to open things up and and there will be any sort of length of time where you could get the return on the investment because you don't know what's going to happen in five years with the next government. Right. And investors have choices, right? As we yeah. mentioned, they can go into different forms of real estate that is less regulated. They can go to different markets that's less regulated. Capital is pretty mobile these days. You can go buy an apartment building in Florida or wherever you want to and not deal with the same level of, of uh, regulation. That said, people get the economics of a, of a growing city and they want to invest here, but you need to get a certain return. And sometimes you do the math and you say – we're getting to a point where we can see new supply, but that gets blurred into, well, there's not enough affordable housing being built. Correct. And I see that it has to be divided into two separate businesses. And it can be divided into two separate businesses in a couple ways in my mind. Number one, you can give incentives to people to build affordable housing proper and operate it separately. Or you could give subsidies to people who don't have the means to afford what it takes to support a modern rental building and help them get into a modern building. And those are both ways to sort of bridge it. But if you're not going to support an affordable housing industry and you're going to look for people to build rental housing, then you've got to say, okay, what do we do with people who have affordability issues? And I'm not sure that the two can be said in the same breath. I guess from the government's perspective, if there's only, if there's a finite amount of land, they have to make a they have to be pretty forward thinking as to, you know, if there's X amount of land available and we need this much affordable housing, how much non-affordable or regular apartments are we going to allow to be built? Because if we just allow that to be built, well, then we're not going to have the space for the affordable unless they blend it, right? I mean, isn't that how they were approving the condos where a certain amount had to be set aside for certain space and, and certain needs? I guess you could say that, but don't forget, there is a a finite amount of land to be developed, but there are also all kinds of ways that the government can address changing the use of different land. We have have employment lands uh, in many cases that bridge an area between uh, residential and commercial areas. You know, loosening those type of uh, zoning regulations to allow for more of a mix of residential into employment areas uh, can help it. And loosening uh, zoning rules at the fringe of uh, between high-rise and low-rise neighborhoods to allow for more mid-rise can solve part of that problem. Allowing more height in particular areas can solve part of that problem. And then, you know, opening up uh, other areas which have uh, have struggled uh, for whatever reason, lack of transit and whatever. Can I don't think the land supply is as big an issue as the overall theory that, you know, we need to have stability in terms of regulation to incent people to make long-term investments and build more rental housing. And I think rental housing is a, an important and overlooked component of the inventory we've been building. We've been building lots of condo, which has been serving as rental apartments. Right. Uh, but we've been doing that because interest rates have been low. And because of that, people are driven to look for investments, and many have bought condos and rented them out. That's okay, but you know, a condo building is not a purpose-built rental building, and we could spend an hour talking about why, in many cases, a purpose-rental uh, building is better. But there are lots of people who are good apartment landlords, and they know what they're doing, and they've had challenges as to why to invest. And I think of late, first of all, a number of things have happened over the last number of years, and I, want, I don't want to just beat up on the last government because right. you know they did a lot of good things too. 
Uh, yeah. I'll give you a case. The Harris government uh, years ago allowed for vacancy decontrol. That was that when apartments turned over, you could ask market rents for the apartment. Okay. That yeah. was a huge shot in the arm for the rental apartment industry because mm-hmm. what you saw was high-quality investors coming back into the market, people reinvesting in existing stock, upgrading amenities, upgrading suites, uh, and making buildings better. And over time, slowly, market rents increase right. towards where they should be to support new construction. Where I have a lot of uh, time for the past liberal government is when they came in, they didn't mess with vacancy decontrol. And even in the run-up to last election, they didn't mess with vacancy decontrol. And vacancy decontrol is a key part of at having stability in the market. So I must say that the fact that they didn't go all the way was a very healthy thing. And it was a very healthy signal that at least maybe somewhere people realize that we need to keep a vibrancy in the rental housing market because we need more supply because it really is at a crisis level. And even with the start of new construction of late, we're getting nowhere near what we need to satisfy the expected growth, particularly in this city over the next 20 or 30 years. Right. And if you don't, if you don't have the growth in the rental side, what happens to the market? Like, where do you see it going? Because we're here now. Like, to my mind, what I would see happening is you have people who, uh, for example, boomers, who decide not to sell their house because if they don't want to go into a condo, they don't have as many choices, number one, right? Right. Which affects the entry level to the market, which where people are stuck renting condos and can't necessarily go to purpose-built buildings or to starter homes because there isn't that turnover. Isn't that pretty much it? I think so. And, and, and let's not forget, the last 20 years have been a, you know, a regeneration of the existing housing stock. Right. So buildings aren't in the – older buildings aren't in the poor shape they were in 20 years ago. So the more that people who choose to rent and can afford to rent in a new building have choice, right. the more they move to something. Because let's face it, there are things in new rental buildings that are very hard to achieve in an older stock building. So what, what are they? What are the benefits of going to a new building? Uh, yeah. Having air conditioning in your suite that's not a unit in the window, but having right. central air conditioning. Right. Having washer-dryer in your suite rather than having to go down to a laundry room. Having a brand-new kitchen with a, with a dishwasher, those type of things. These are all, you know, having highly energy-efficient units, uh, having, uh, you know, uh, better controls. Uh, inter, inter, uh, interconnectivity and, and web access, et cetera. All that right. kind of stuff, right? Yep. I mean, everything that we sort of expect uh, in, in sort of moder- modern condo living, that and more in terms of efficiency is finding its way into new rental buildings because it makes sense. Uh, you know, spending less in energy helps you in terms of uh, your long-term model of uh, making money as an apartment landlord, where you may not be incented to have that long-term view as a condo developer, because you say people are paying for the space, but they're not really looking as carefully at the cost as a one unit uh, paying utilities as a landlord with 200 units is looking at the bills. So there's lots of you know future thinking ways to build really good apartment buildings. That said, older buildings are in much better shape than they used to be. So as you incent people to move to newer product, you open up vacancy in in older products, still in great locations in many cases. But probably less rent than the newer buildings. Correct. And you would think that the more supply you have, the more the market can really find, you know, real market rents at different price points that make sense rather than saying there's no vacancy at all, so everyone can sort of charge a little bit more. Even then, rents have gotten really expensive, but... Take a look at, you know, let, let's do the back of the envelope math. It okay. used to be uh, 20 years ago that a two-bedroom apartment in Toronto was maybe $1,500 a month. Okay. 
Now I think we could guess that it's you know twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars a month maybe for a nice apartment. So it's doubled in twenty years. Right. That's a lot, but it's not a crazy number. You know, it's probably I don't know. What do you think it is? A three to four percent a year increase to sort of get to that kind of number, yeah. right? Yeah. Part of the problem is you know in our society, too many people haven't had their incomes grow in the same way. Yeah. Right. So we need to find a way to help those people as well and not always blame it on rents escalating because in some ways rents have gone up because land has gone up. Construction costs have gone up. And when construction costs go up, what does that mean? It means unionized employees are getting higher wages because they're doing, you know, uh, trades that are that are an important part of growing the economy. But right. It's a complicated uh, subject because we need to figure out, number one, how to build affordable housing and provide the incentives to get, I think, the private market to be interested in doing it because I don't think they're there now. We need some public involvement in doing it, which we've heard of, but I just worry that it's not going to be enough to satisfy what we need. But we clearly also need to figure out how we find a new type of uh, employment strategy and education strategy for people who haven't seen their their incomes rise to the same extent that they did in the past over the last 20 years and who are struggling to deal with the realities of, of the successes of a city that's growing because of immigration, because of other people people in growing sectors. Yeah, I think you're right. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But will you come back next month and let's talk about maybe some we can noodle on some solutions that make sense for the city and the province. And if only they would listen to us. Will you come back? That'd be great. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break. But when we return, we're going to discuss maintaining your fitness over the holidays with systems and not willpower on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. What do you give the person who has everything? The gift of health from the Big Carrot. A Big Carrot gift card gives your loved ones access to all their amazing departments, including body care, the organic juice bar, the holistic dispensary, and even the Carrot Kitchen. Gift cards are available for purchase at both the Beach and Danforth locations. The Big Carrot, living better together. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. Our next guest, Kathleen Trotter, is a fitness expert, nutritionist, life coach, monthly guest on BT Montreal and Rogers, Ottawa, and author of the books Finding Your Fit and the new Your Fittest Future Self, which will be available in January. Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love chatting with you, and I love December. It's like my favorite month. Is it? It is. Really? (laughs) You're like looking at me. I don't know. No, if I took my boots off, you would see that I'm actually wearing knee-high Christmas socks. So I'm obsessed with finding the joy in life, and December, for some reason, is a really Nobody's ever described me as obsessed with finding the joy in life. You're obsessed with finding something in life, I know, I know. (laughs) But yeah, I really believe that happiness along with fitness is made, not found. And so I I wake up every morning being like, where am I going to find the joy? Where am I going to find, you know, my little pocket of sunshine? And in December, it's just easier for me because I have, you know, friends, family I get to see. I get to wear my fun socks. Well, that alone. Christmas pajamas. There you go. Right? Good food. 
I hear you. And you know what? I, I don't dislike December, but okay. there are people out there who find it more stressful, right? For sure, it, yes. it, it, it can be brutal for some Absolutely. people. And I want to acknowledge, like, one of the reasons why I don't find it stressful is I don't have any children. I don't have to buy <laughs> gifts for people. Right. I don't have a massive family. Like, it's just, yeah. you know, it's my mom and I and my partner, James, and, like, that's about it, and it's kind of simple. But And it's hard for a lot of people, right? Because right. if you have a lot of work obligations, family obligations, then you feel like, all the positive habits that you do for yourself, like exercise and eating well, they can sort of fall away. And all the right. negative things are very amplified. Like, you know, if you find it stressful, then you want to drink more, you want to eat more, you exercise less, you sleep less. So you can kind of feel like you're off your rocker a bit in December. So I, almost, I think a lot of people feel either either overwhelmed by the holidays or almost the opposite, that they have license to yes. kind of get off their schedules, yeah. right? Yeah. I know, like, for me, it's one of the few times where I'm not, doing everything because Mm -hmm. you don't publish over Christmas. You don't record over Christmas necessarily. Yeah. It's easy to fall into the like, oh, well, who cares? I'll get back on my fitness horse in January. But the problem is, is that it's way easier to keep up than it is to catch up. So if you wake up January 1st and you're like, oh my God, I'm 10 pounds heavier. I feel crappy. I feel low energy. It's much harder to reroute than it is to just be slightly more mindful throughout the entire month. And I'm not saying don't enjoy life. Like I love my chocolate. But, you know, I try to live by my love it rule, which is I mindfully indulge in things that I love and things that I don't love, I don't eat. So I don't love Dorito chips. I'm not going to have Dorito chips. I don't like apple pie. I'm not going to like, uh, you're not going to have that. But I love Nanaimo bars. I love really good chocolate. I'm going to have a little bit of those things. Right. And I'm going to continue to move whenever possible, exercise whenever I can, because that also just helps me manage my stress. It makes me feel better. I make sure... That I keep exercising through yes. the holidays because for us it's a festival of eating. My kids are back from university, yeah. and the expectation is we're going to take them to nice restaurants. Yes. And it's also my anniversary. Oh, uh, happy be- anniversary! Thank you. Between Christmas and New Year's, we celebrate our wedding anniversary, which means we're going out for big dinners. Yes, it's then. a lot of celebrations, a lot yeah. of eating, yeah. a lot of drinking, etc., yeah. etc. Et well, I think that's common. And right. what I say to people is instead of putting your head in the sand and either saying what you did, which is like, "Oh well, this month is a write-off," or saying, "Well," this year will be different. I will find a way to be disciplined, but not really setting up the systems to allow you to be disciplined. What I say to my clients is you have to set up systems now to save yourself from your future holiday lesser self, right? Like, (laughs) you know, you're going to be at a party and want to indulge. You know, you're going to want to skip a workout. You know, you're going to go to a restaurant, you know, with your family. So what do you decide on now to be aware of? So then your future self who wants to say, oh, well, who cares? Can't really, because the systems are already set up. Okay, so when you're talking about the systems, what do you mean? Like, let's let's have some concrete examples. I love concrete examples. (laughs) So for myself, my biggest thing I do is I don't bring crap into the house. That's hard this time of year, right? It is, and it's. I fully admit that it's easier because I live, as I said, just with just me and my partner, so it's like easier for us. But as much as possible, (laughs) we have a rule: he's not no chocolate because I I'm pretty good at not eating crap that I don't like. So as long as it's not like. Beautiful milk chocolate. Oh, you like milk? Cho- See, my thing is I like dark, dark chocolate. I like dark chocolate. chocolate. Late chocolate. at late at night when everybody's asleep. Yeah. Then yeah. I will indulge in the dark yeah. chocolate. So that's the thing. So for me, I'm really good up until like eight o'clock at night, yeah. and then I'm tired. And if it's there, I'll eat it. So yep. I don't have things I love in my house. 
Another really big one is if I'm going out to eat at a restaurant, I look at the menu before I go yep. and I decide what I'm going to have. And then when I arrive, I don't even look at the menu. I just say to the waiter exactly what I've already decided I'm going to have. Why? Why do you do that? Because again, at home, I have the discipline to know my future self will be happy if I have, you know, a big salad or a protein or whatever it is. When you get to the restaurant, there's peer pressure. You're maybe a little bit more hungry. Maybe you're tired. And you're like, you go into what you said earlier. They're like, oh, well, who cares? It's the holidays. Mm-hmm. But your future self will care, right? And you will feel better if you don't indulge at every single meal. Okay. So the menu is a big one. Mm-hmm. You can also say something like to the waiter, you know what? Just bring me out half. I don't need the full thing. And you pack up the other half and you bring it for lunch the next day. That's a good idea. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Another thing is if you're going to a party and you're worried that you're not going to have anything healthy to eat, offer to bring something. Like, you know, I often bring a salad. And then that way, even if there's lots of things I'm tempted by, I can have a little bit of the temptations and Mm -hmm. then I can just have the base of my healthy salad. So you kind of know that you're setting yourself up for success. Right. Okay. You know, it's all about the advanced planning. Uh, Some people find the system of journaling, like on their phone, keeping a record of what they eat, really useful, right? Because if you're like, well, if I have to write it down, you know, I might only have that one piece of uh, cake, not two, or I won't have that second helping because I have to write that down. Right. Now, I've never journaled. I think it would be helpful to me because I'm a slippery slope guy, right? Yeah. Uh, It's the little nushing here and there, right? It all adds up, right? So that's actually a great one. You can say to yourself for the month of December, absolutely no mindless eating. So you are allowed to indulge, you know, when you're sitting with your family at a beautiful meal. Right. But if you're cooking, you put a piece of gum in your mouth so you don't sort of nibble when you cook. No picking off anybody else's plate. No standing eating. No eating while you watch TV. Like nothing where you're not paying attention to what's going into your mouth. Right, okay. And that actually will take away so many empty calories because if you're actually sitting and thinking about what you're eating, you're going to eat the nutritionally dense food that you love, not the sort of handful of almonds here, a couple candies there, a chocolate bar here, right? And those things all add up. When you're sitting in front of the TV and the commercial breaks, you know, some stations are worse than others, right? If you're if you're watching the Food Network... Oh my God, it's, right? It's, it's like, oh, that's so yummy. I want more of that too. It's, exactly. It's not just the food that you're watching being made, which is always delicious, but then it's the commercial breaks where they're or reinforcing that with more food Totally. Right? So that's a hard one. And we watch a lot of Food Network. So yeah, you have to watch the TV. The, yes, the exactly. TV. Yeah. And then just decide that again, you know, it is the holiday, so you don't want to deprive yourself. But if right. you can say to yourself, your base is going to be good. So Commit to taking healthy lunches, eating healthy breakfasts, you know, um, when at home eating healthy dinners, because it's easy to do what you said, that slippery slope of, oh, well, you know, I had bad food last night, I might as well have a bad breakfast. Or I had, you know, I had cake last night, I might as well have a cookie at three o'clock this afternoon. But if you say to yourself, call it the mustard rule, right? Go ahead. So the mustard rule, I know you're like looking at me like, that's a funny rule, but it actually is very helpful. If when you want to go into that negative brain propaganda of, well, I've had one cookie, I might as well have three. You say to yourself, if I put a little bit of mustard on my shirt by accident, would you be like, oh, well, I already have a little bit of mustard on my shirt. Let's just take this entire bottle and pour it all over me. And then let's like get into a bath of mustard, (laughs) right? Like that's really the equivalent of what you're saying, that a little bit of mustard is the same as a bottle of mustard. One cookie is the same as five. It's not the same, right? right? It is really, really, really not. And portions are so important. And you can have one cookie and still be a really healthy person and have the energy to go for a walk after dinner and, 
you know, go play in the snow with your friends and family, have a, like, go tobogganing, go skating, like, be active, dancing at your party, right? But, you know, See, 10 you're, you're, cookies you're, and alcohol, that's... But you're, dis- you're disciplined, okay? I'm going to speak for all the undisciplined people. <laughs> you're like, there. I'm speaking for everybody I, else. I'm, I'm taking them all under my wing. <laughs> I love it. Because I'm one of you. I'm one of you, honestly. There has to be a safety valve. And I think it's really important this time of year. I, I, you yes. may not agree with this. But no, I totally do. That's why I don't bring food into my house. You yeah, no, 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 no. I don't mean that. Okay. What I mean is. You look very serious. Yeah, right? I am. I am. Because I have to set you straight on this. Set me straight. I think in some instances you have to reward yourself mm-hmm. proactively. Mm-hmm. Part of your planning has to be, this is what I am going to allow myself mm-hmm. to do. Because if you don't allow yourself to do something, that's when you fall off the rails. I that's, completely agree. That's, I, that's when the guilt compounds, right? Absolutely. So, so like you don't plan to eat the cookie, but then you find yourself eating it. And then it's like, oh, okay, I've eaten the cookie. All bets are off. Right. Whereas if you say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to have dessert tonight. You'll pick and choose very carefully what dessert you're going to have, and then that'll be it. And it's much more attainable if you say to yourself, I'm planning my indulgence in addition to planning how you're going to avoid the indulgence. That is actually what I was really saying. Like, it's about all of life. Yeah, it didn't sound like it. (laughs) Okay, well, listen, it's all about choices. Life is about choices, right? And that's why I started the conversation with your love it rule. You decide what you love, and you have a moderate amount of that. And then what you don't love, you don't have. And I love your idea of you know in advance what you're going to have. And that's sort of, that's the idea of setting up the systems. Like you go to a party and you say, okay, I'm going to have one glass of wine, but I'm not going to have five. Right. I'm going to have a glass of water in between each glass of wine, right? That's going to spread them out. Or I'm going to have wine with some soda water in it, like a white wine spritzer or something. So then you get some fun. But like just have a plan of what you're going to do. Let's be honest. Not everything is worth indulging. It may look good. Exactly. Right? But but a lot of self is not going to be happy. Well, it's not even about the future self. It's about like, for me, if I have a bad meal, I'm upset about it. And if I allow myself to have a crappy bad meal Mm -hmm. in the sense of like it's empty calories, that's even worse. You want to enjoy If it's not going to be healthy, you at least want to really, truly and savor and enjoy it. Exactto. Yeah, no, I, I, com- I think we're both on the same page. And then the really big thing is, is if you go to the party with the plan to have one glass of wine and one cookie and you end up having two or three, you don't beat yourself up about it. You say, self, get to the gym tomorrow. Right. Go for a walk. Don't let those three cookies turn into 10 because that is the mustard. Excellent, excellent advice. You're going to come in next month, right? I am. And we're going to discuss your fittest future self. Yes. Excellent. We've got to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about lifestyle tips for boosting your mood on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. 
It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMed Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of a medical issue using natural therapies, either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine, to affect results. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. So every December, it's the same thing. Less light, colder weather, family commitments, stresses, draining bank accounts. We can't help but feel a little bit down or anxious or depressed. Mm. But you're here with some lifestyle tips to cheer us up. Yes. And I really need this because I'm a moody SOB. Okay. So this is all about me again. This is one of those episodes. All right. What makes us sad? There's a whole myriad of factors that contributes to depression. And we also have to kind of link anxiety in there because as I say, anxiety and depression are often kind of married. Many people don't have one without the other, haven't experienced one without the other. It could be hormonally related. There's genetic predisposition. There's, you know, side effects from medication, change in light. A really big factor, especially as people age, has to do with loneliness and change in relationships. And when we look at some of the psychology around sadness, a big part of sadness, not anxiety, but specifically sadness, has to do with loss of relationships or change in relationships and then coming out to loneliness, which can very much turn into sadness. Yeah, it's unfortunate. We understand what what sort of motivates us to sort of feeling down, we'll call it. Yeah. What would be your number one tip for somebody who's feeling down? What would you suggest is the first step? Just commit to doing something. I'd say that there's so many different applications, different solutions that we know we now have for mood changes, mood enhancement, that even though when you're sad or you're feeling depressed, sometimes it's really hard to get motivated to make a lifestyle change or try something new, but you've got to keep trying something else. A lot of people want to just sit in that sadness. You can't. You got to choose something, try it for a little bit of time. If it doesn't work, try something else and so on and so forth. You've got to make a change somewhere. And what's implicit in that is if you've been doing the same thing over and over again and you still find yourself sad, it's time to try something new. That's right. And I'd say, you know, anti-anxiety and antidepressant medications are now so common. I think the last time I checked the statistics, it was well over, I think, 30 or 40% of Canadians have been on an antidepressant agent or using an antidepressant agent at some time in their life. And antidepressant medication can work. Unfortunately, it's not as effective as we'd love it to be. Right. But after being on antidepressant medications for a few years, a lot of people start dipping back down to that into that depression. It might be time for a medication change or using adjunctive solutions like exercise, changes in the diet that actually might help that medication work better again. Right. So let's be clear. For some people, if you're experiencing sort of life-changing events, you know, there, there's no, we're not being judgmental about taking antidepressants. No, not at all. But I think you have to do it with open eyes and you have to recognize there may be side effects for yeah. you. They may not necessarily be effective for you and yeah. it shouldn't become a crutch. That's right. You know, I kind of think of them as a bridge 
over. You know, they're good for certain times in people's lives. They're good to kind of get people out of that dark space, but they're not, you know, a forever solution. There's other work that has to be done to get you kind of over the mountain again. Okay. So let's focus on what we can do that doesn't rely on pharmaceuticals that can help us with our mood. So I'd like to start with one, which I find is particularly helpful for me because I'm extremely emotional and moody. Yes. I find exercise is fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Exercise is. We have tons of research showing how effective it is. In fact, we have some studies showing that exercise might be as effective or more effective than fluoxetine, which is Prozac, Mm -hmm. and even better when exercise and an antidepressant agent is combined for those that need it. The other really fascinating thing about exercise is an area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is responsible for mood stabilization. In people that are depressed, it actually shrinks a little bit. But exercise helps neuronal growth to that hippocampus area. So helping, you know, actually brain changes for greater mood stabilization. Yeah, we've had people in to discuss that. It's one of the most primitive parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are hardwired to be roaming around, hunting and gathering and doing stuff. So when you start mimicking those physical attributes, your brain actually grows with you. And and aside from the muscle growth, you're actually growing your brain by exercising. Which is amazing. Right. And I used to run. I can't run anymore. And I really did experience the runner's high and that you don't have to run to experience it. You can do other things. Like I find strength training in and of itself after doing it, I I loathe it while I'm doing it, but after I do feel so much better. Oh, me too. I love strength training. That's what I love. I've never been a good runner, but I love strength training. And, And even if I can't, since having a baby, I can't strength train the way I used to. Even if I get into the gym and do 20 minutes instead of 40 minutes, it still is good. I've gone some days where, you know, I've been late and I'm there. I only have eight to 10 minutes. It still makes a difference. Something is better than nothing. And if you can't get to the gym, I assure you, you could do it in your bedroom. You could do in your living room. Yes. There are ways to get your exercise in without even leaving your home if the weather doesn't permit or if you're not yeah. able, you don't have the mobility. Or, you know, getting outside for a walk, even bundling up, even if you get out there for five minutes yep. a few times a week, that's going to make a huge difference over time. Okay. Let's talk about another one. How about diet? Do you think diet can help your mood? Absolutely. Yeah. Clinically, I've seen it really help people's mood. We have a lot of the research saying it absolutely does help the mood. Focusing on whole foods. We talked previously about trans fats and right. how they're not great for diabetes and cardiovascular disease. They're also not good for depression and mood. Uh, same with too much sugar. Too much sugar can actually really affect people's moods. I find it's a cycle. I personally uh, suffer from emotional eating. If yeah. I'm not, if I'm feeling down, I will eat more. I'll eat when people go to sleep. I'll eat at night. Sure. And then of course, I'll feel guilty about having eaten the things that I shouldn't have. And it's kind of, a you know, the self-loathing comes in. Yes. Oh, I shouldn't have eaten that. Yeah. Shouldn't do that. And it's it's a vicious cycle. So getting control over your intake and by diet, we don't mean a literal diet. It's your food intake can make a huge difference. And just focusing on healthier foods. And if you fall off the horse, you get back on right. again. You know, yes. and there's some foods specifically that are better for the mood. Uh, we talked about fats last month. Omega-3 fatty acids from fish have yep. lots of clinical studies showing that they help uh, support mood for vegetarians or vegans. Chia seeds have some good omega-3 fatty acids. And then, of course, foods high in folic acid or B vitamins, dark leafy greens, lots of bright vegetables and fruits can also be very beneficial for the mood. While we're talking about stuff we intake, what supplements would you recommend for mood? Is there anything? There's some great supplements for mood. With the supplement piece, it's really important if people are on medication or considering medication, 
you, you really need to be overseen by a professional when right. using supplements, whether alone or a conjunction with your antidepressant agents, because a lot of supplements that actually do have beneficial aspects for the mood will interact with right. antidepressant so, medications. So you have so to be careful with That's a really important point. Yeah. yeah. But St. John's wort has been used for years and years for anxiety and depression. We have clinical studies showing that for mild to moderate depression, it can be as effective as a lot of antidepressant agents on the market. There's also something called 5-HTP, which is a precursor to make serotonin in the brain. It's a feel-good neurotransmitter. That can also be beneficial for people. Even simple things like B vitamins. Again, B vitamins through diet help the mood, but also supplementing with extra B vitamins can be beneficial. And then I'd say the other piece is what a lot of people don't think about is protein supplements. Because serotonin, that feel-good neurotransmitter, that's made of amino acids. Amino acids are proteins. So we need ample proteins to make these feel-good substances in our brains. If we take them in in the morning, it actually gives you the building blocks throughout the day to have a happier day. Hmm. So a lot of people don't think of having fish or chicken for breakfast, but for some people struggling with depression and don't want to do the supplement route, that can actually be beneficial. Or using some protein supplements, although sometimes protein powders can get more expensive, but there's a lot of ways that you can just add protein to your diet in a more affordable way in the mornings. That's a good idea. All right, now that we're going down the path of things that you can take, what's your take on cannabis? I'd say it's mixed. You know, we know that there's two... Well, so far, the research around two substances in cannabis, THC and CBD. Right. And we know that the THC component, which is also responsible for that high or euphoria that people experience when using cannabis, that substance may also be effective to help reduce anxiety and improve depression. But on the flip side, there may be, because it does produce that euphoria or that high, there may be some addictive properties. Right. Also, we know that although it helps in the short term, in the long term, it actually might increase depression or anxiety rates. Well, you can get moody, right? And <laughs> I, apocryphally, if you know people who've been taking cannabis for a while, yes. sometimes they get into little snits if they're regular users. They get, yeah. I don't know how to describe it. It's little mini rages. So yeah. it isn't necessarily all positive. No, and, and because of that euphoric feeling too, there's that addictive potential, which for years I remember growing up, people talking about how cannabis isn't addictive. It's this great drug because it's not like cocaine where, you know, there's no addictive properties. But now we know that there is addictive properties to cannabis. So I think there needs to be more research. It absolutely could be a good intervention for some people, but again, it needs to be properly regulated. And I I do think we need more studies to actually see long-term how people do. And also, is THC better? Is CBD better? Is there other constituents? that are going to come out down the line from cannabis that's good for mood. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about ways of finding peace without necessarily taking the cannabis. What do you think about mindfulness and meditation? I think it's awesome for people that can do it. And addictive in a good way if you're, if you're, yeah. if you're into it. I mean, meditation, as a lot of my patients say, it's really, really tough for a lot of people. Yeah, I can't do it. But, Especially yeah. when they're anxious. Yep. Although meditation and mindfulness has amazing benefits for anxiety. Because what meditation and mindfulness does is it teaches the brain to not respond or go down those dark alleyways in your mind. You know, it allows you to kind of just know that those thoughts are there, but not react to them, to kind of detach from them, which allows one to experience a lot less anxiety. It has a lot of other benefits like better sleep. People have seen weight loss with mindfulness and meditation. But again, it's something that if someone's interested in, they've really got to 
decide that they're going to take a good stab at it. It's work, right? And work at it. It's it's like going to the gym in the, in the sense of commitment. Like That's when right. we're talking about supplements and food and cannabis, you're ingesting it. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But if you're going to do mindfulness, you're doing it. It's not something you can dabble in and expect results. But even same with diet. You know, when we talked at the beginning, what's the number one thing I'd say is someone's got to try something and give it a good sure. shot, right? Yeah. And if someone was going to go and get um, an antidepressant pill, you'd try it for at least four to six weeks and you take it every day until you decide if it's working or not. Right. So can you imagine if someone did that with mindfulness meditation? For six weeks, they committed every single day. They did mindfulness meditation and then stepped back and said, am I improving or not? Right. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, we didn't even get to talk about everything. There's sleep, there's sunlight, but I think we we gave a lot of people food for thought. For sure. Which is the key point. So thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. In January, I'd like you to come back and I'd like to hear your take on the diet trends because I think a lot of people are going to contemplate diets in January. Sure. You'll do that? I will. Excellent. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. At Caregiver Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24 hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, Finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24 hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to the show. We have two guests in this segment. Dr. Varun Chaudhry is a vitreal retinal surgeon. I hope I'm saying that right. Chief of Ophthalmology and Associate Professor of Surgery at Hamilton Regional Eye Institute. He's an educator and acts as retina chair for McMaster University Ophthalmology Residency Training Program and has been the recipient of the Surgical and Medical Teacher of the Year Award three times. He's also editor-in-chief for the Canadian Journal of Ophthalmology. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you very much for having me, Jamie. What is the risk to vision for diabetics? I think we need to look at this from a population perspective. And just so your listeners understand, diabetes is the number one cause of vision loss in patients less than 65 years of age. Yes. The diabetes affects predominantly the retinal layer, which is, if you think of yourself as a room, the eyeball as a room, the retina is the wallpaper inside the room. And what diabetes does is that does damage to the blood vessels, and these blood vessels bleed, they leak cholesterol, they leak fluid, and they die over time because of diabetes. And so the 
wallpaper, which is that sensitive tissue that picks up light and sends signals to the brain, gets damaged over years of diabetes, especially if the control has not been very good. So is the loss of vision gradual or does it happen all at once? It typically happens gradually, but unfortunately patients, unless you're getting regular eye exams, will not find out till they have an acute loss in vision. Ah, okay. Are there other additional health risks associated with DR? So diabetes and the, does damage to what we call microvessels, and these are present in the retina, and that's why we have vision loss, but they're all the, also the same vessels that are present in the heart and the kidneys. So eyes is the one place where we can actually look at the health of these vessels, and that tells us it, a very good indication of how your heart and kidneys are doing. So those are the three main organs which diabetes affects, and if your eye disease is bad, that has been correlated with worse heart disease and worse kidney disease from diabetes. So if you're diagnosed with DR, does that mean that you should be seeing other specialists as well to deal with the other? Or is it a direct correlation? There, there is a correlation. I would say you need a quarterback like your family physician who, because there's different stages of diabetes. So early diabetic retinopathy is not a major risk factor, but as your diabetic retinopathy gets worse, there, your risk for other diseases goes up too. But your family doctor will be able to test you for other conditions and based on blood test results and such, they would refer you to other specialists as required. Is DR preventable if you have diabetes? It's controllable, and the, the better control you have, you can certainly limit or prevent vision loss. Everyone with diabetes will likely get some minimal damage over time, but that's not of, of visual consequence, and hence that's something that patients don't need to be too concerned about. I think what patients need to know is as diabetic retinopathy gets progressed, progresses over time, and because they will not know that it's getting worse, regular screening is of utmost importance because you need to pick it up and then start treatment before you have vision loss. What is the treatment? So the great question and comes on to what's actually happening within the retina. Uh, our two predominant treatments we, we use in clinics nowadays are injections of a drug given in the eye that essentially undoes a lot of the damage that's taking place to the blood vessels. So essentially, if you think of blood vessels in your eye or think of them as a hose with holes in it, and it's these holes that's causing fluid of water to leak from the hose, this, dr this drug essentially helps repair the hose so it's no longer leaking fluid. If that doesn't work, we also have laser treatment, especially if blood vessels are dying in the back of your eye and new blood vessels start to grow and these are actually not very effective. They cause extra damage to your eye. Then we can use laser treatment. So nowadays, commonly in clinic, we use laser and injections to try to control diabetes. And in small number of patients, when it gets really bad, we have to unfortunately go to the operating room and do retinal surgery to try to stabilize the condition. So the injection and the laser treatment, is that outpatient? It's an outpatient procedure done by an ophthalmologist, correct. Okay. And can a regular eye exam function as early diagnosis of diabetes? It certainly can. I think it's critically important that patients, A, if they have diabetes, let their eye doctor know that they have eye diabetes because you do need to get drops to dilate your eyes so you can look at the back of the eye. Just going in for a regular eye exam and, and, and getting glasses, for instance, would not help diagnose diabetes. You need to ensure that your doctor puts drops to dilate your eyes and has a look at the back of the eye. Yeah, I actually went in, I had to get a new prescription filled before I could get new glasses, and I had the eye drops, 
And the person conducting the test actually said that there was sort of a ring around the eye suggesting an issue with cholesterol. Yeah, that had probably has to do with the cornea, the clear part of the eye on top of which you put a contact lens on. Right. Um, but exactly. I can tell you a lot about your systemic conditions, including cholesterol levels. Great. Do ophthalmologists routinely perform these tests for, for DR as part of a checkup? Or, or is this something that patient would need to request? It's something ophthalmologists perform routinely and, and the majority of or large push portion of a patient uh, in Canada, for instance, will be getting diabetic eye checks. However, again, it comes down to if a family doctor or if the patient is concerned about diabetes, they should inform the ophthalmologist that they specifically look for changes that go along with diabetes. Fantastic. Well, at this point in the interview, I'm going to call on our second guest. Anita Westlake was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 12 years old. After suffering blurred vision, she was referred to an ophthalmologist. Subsequently, she was diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy in 2017 and since has had surgery in both eyes. Her sight in both eyes was saved, and that inspired her to continue her work with people living with diabetes. She currently runs two CDC-accredited podcasts and a YouTube channel dedicated to healthy lifestyle management for those living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jamie. I'm so happy to be here today. You were diagnosed with DR. What was your experience like with that? It was terrifying, to be honest with you. I think for most people, especially those living with diabetes, anything to do with your eyes can be very intimidating. None of us want to lose our eyesight or feel vulnerable in doing so. And when it comes to diabetes, there is this correlation between blindness and having diabetes. So during that time, I really, especially in diagnosis, I lived in fear. For sure, totally understandable. Given your experience, would you have done anything differently? Oh, absolutely. What would you have done? Absolutely. Well, I talk about success plans all the time for those in risk of developing diabetes or living with diabetes. And part of my success plan would include regular visits to an ophthalmologist. I had no idea how far they have come when it comes to treatment and what they can do. I was absolutely amazed. And you're talking to someone that I could not put a drop in my eye prior to this experience. I didn't want to look at anything to do with the eyes. It was just, it was very scary. And what my journey, although very intimidating for those that hear it, was an absolute success. And I found the treatments were not as daunting as I thought. I think sometimes in the description or what we've been told in the past, we carry with us not realizing that this experience doesn't have to be as scary as one would think. Yep, that makes sense. What advice would you have for somebody who's been diagnosed with diabetes? I would make regular visits to your ophthalmologist. Make that part of your success plan. Don't live in fear and let that cement your feet. Make a success plan for yourself and include regular visits to an ophthalmologist. So I would suggest that uh, when you make a success plan for yourself, whether you're avoiding diabetes or living with diabetes, and we actually talk about these success plans and finding what success means to you on your journey of health. And that's why I devised my program, Every Healthy Choice Counts, which is accredited, and I'd like to acknowledge the CDC and its creation. And you can have a look at that at 
ALWHealth.com. Every healthy choice counts. Well, that's uh, fantastic advice. That's all the time we have today. Thank you both for coming in today. Much appreciate, Jamie, having me on your show. Thanks, Jamie. And thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For the best health and wellness articles, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we discuss mindfulness and effectiveness, continuing adult education, and yoga and social media. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.